Welcome to Onsite Season 2. I have a very special guest today. Very excited to speak to this gentleman. He has been in the business for a lot more than 20 years. He formed his company almost 20 years ago. And um, before that, started in New York. I'm going to speak to him a little bit about that. Uh, my guest today is Chris Meany. Um, and he is the founder of Wilson Meany, uh, which he founded 20 years ago. And he's done a number of really high-profile, incredible projects, including the Ferry Building, One Powell, 48 Stockton, the Flood Building, Magnolia Place, Treasure Island, uh, which I want to talk a little bit about, Bay Meadows, and the list goes on. Chris is based in San Francisco, one of my favorite cities in the world. Uh, we're going to talk about what's going on in San Francisco and i um, going to talk about his incredibly exciting new project, and uh, we'll get into that. So, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me uh, and the listeners, and welcome to OnSite. Thanks, Sean. I really appreciate getting to talk to you. So, um, let's turn the clock back a little bit. Let's start at the beginning. Where are you from originally, and uh, how did you make your way to being one of the top developers in San Francisco? Oh, <laughs> I'm, I, you know, I've been around for a while, but uh, I, I grew up in Southern California in Pasadena. Like a lot of kids, where I grew up is not where I wanted to be. And uh, I made must, and I was fortunate enough to work a couple of years in your town, New York. But uh, I worked for some small but great development uh, groups there, and they kept sending me back to California to do work here. And beginning in the late 80s, I, it stuck and I just stayed put and uh, have been developing in San Francisco since that time, since the 80s. If, if you had to identify one thing that's changed the most in San Francisco since the 80s, what, what would you say? San Francisco runs in cycles. They're fairly violent. We have six or seven year runs up and then a few years of sharp downturns. And in my time, the the recoveries have always taken us past the prior peak. And so since I got started here, we've actually been through multiple cycles. And, you know, the easy thing to point to today is to say that that technology in the city itself technology companies in the city of San Francisco itself are a much greater presence than they were in the past. That's the headline we all talk about. But, you know, during the last 20 or 30 years, there's been a lot of other changes that might not get the headlines, but are as important. For example, we have so many no-growth people in San Francisco that make it so difficult to build housing that there's a concerted effort to get our new housing concentrated downtown. Real rise of the high rise in downtown San Francisco and less development in the, the neighborhoods. You've seen a real effort to put caps, goes back to the 1980s, on how much office we could develop that has really kept this very hot market from ever truly overheating. And so all those things actually make it a fun but pretty challenging market. So are these like NIMBY people who just don't want growth and development and, you, you know, I mean, I, th I think every every town has them, 
maybe San Francisco, these people are a little bit more powerful and the <laughs> community stronger? What, what makes it so challenging? In coastal California, and that's we really deal in Los in in do our developments in Los Angeles and in San Francisco and the, the core markets there, and both places are difficult. You know, if you're dealing in a place where there's affluent residents who are very comfortable with their world, and they can stop development that's going to inevitably have some kind of short-term consequence. In California, there's a lot of tools for them to do that. So it's, it is quite difficult. So it's difficult, I think, in all of coastal California. In San Francisco, we have a, a really interesting situation. So we're a fairly small city, you know, only 850,000 or so people, seven square miles. We're part of this much, much bigger region that is really quite relevant to our, our life. But San Francisco is a place apart that people really want to live. It's quite charming. Coastal California is notorious a place that's difficult to get entitlement to do new development. San Francisco is is absolutely one of the places that it's that it is most challenging. And it's for a lot of reasons. You know, it's a city of only 850,000 people. It's very small geographically. We're seven miles by seven miles in terms of geographic area. A huge percentage of our existing housing stock is under under rent control. And we have a population that's very torn between how much economic growth they want to see and how much they want to preserve our, our lifestyle. So land use is a blood sport in San Francisco. That's not ideal. It's certainly not good for society as a whole because we as uh, human beings in in our society and our economic place want there to be population growth. You know, we see when there's population decline, it's really quite negative. But we want population growth and we wanna we wanna steer it well. It doesn't do much good to just put the barricades up. But but that is what happens in San Francisco. And so those of us that do get through, it's usually quite painful, but we have a pretty valuable asset when we get through when we run the gauntlet right well i think you know uh, a lot of what's been in the news lately is that the united states is actually showing a negative population growth it's like it's slowing down i think um they're saying you know millennials don't want kids there's concern about that you know so about a year ago as we know we were slammed with a pandemic seems like everyone in a major urban environment kind of fled. You know, we experienced that in New York City. Not everyone fled, but those with the means fled to places in the suburbs where they could have more space. And I believe San Francisco saw some of this as well. What's going on in the city now? Because, you know, we've heard horror stories and, you know, there's the homeless population there is growing. It seems like a lot of people left. And there were a lot of similarities between New York and San Francisco in the last two months in New York, we've seen a complete 180 in our market here and people are coming back and they're buying and, and the real estate market is now hot again. Seems like we've seen the bottom of the cycle. What are you seeing in San Francisco? I think we are seeing the beginning of a turn in San Francisco, though I think it's a little bit trailing New York because we're opening up slower than New York is. But to step back and talk about it as a state, you know, there's these headlines 
it gets it gets obnoxious here, right? You're you're. We, I read every day about somebody that's moved to Texas to escape the taxes here, the more friendly business environment. California last year had a modest, quite modest, but modest decline in its population, which is the first time that its population has been growing, and everybody is um, kind of saying, "Well, over in its past." And I will I will just tell you, we'll all know the answer to that question in 10 or 15 years. But my my take on it today is that California seems to me poised to have an amazingly strong next few years. What I see going on, and I'll start at the state and then get to the city. So it's interesting. If you look at the actual demographic trends, first of all, Obviously, as a country, we're working to lower our immigration numbers. And California is a place that is traditionally taken in immigrants. So as the flow of immigrants has been reduced, you, you do see a reduction there. You also see a reduction. There's a, a net out migration in the population sort of 50 and up and out migration in the populations that make less than $150,000. But what's interesting is in the key demographics of, say, people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, we actually today have net in-migration into the state of California. At income levels over $150,000, we have net in-migration into the state of California. What's going on is that California is a pretty sophisticated market. Our companies are operating in a high-cost place, and they succeed because they are doing higher-end work, more value-added work. And they can pay and do pay and offer a path up for people that are high achievers. The negative side to that is, and I don't like this, but there is a there really has been an income and wealth gap, uh, a gap that's crept in. And you see uh, lower wage people saying, this is a hard place to make a living and I'm going to move out. And again, I don't consider, I, I say that to say the picture is more complex than the headlines say. I don't say it's, but the problem is different. It's rising income inequality, not the fact that we are hemorrhaging people. In terms of San Francisco itself and this idea that, you know, kind of the barbarians have taken the place. I first note, to, to start with an, with some negative news, I think it, we've had in our apartment portfolio, we've had rent declines of something on the order of 15%, which is the first time that that's happened. That's because of COVID and pre-COVID to now? That's correct. Correct. Right. Yeah. And... But by the way, they're already moving back up. You know, the way I, I think about it, and I'm, I'm guessing this is sort of the experience you've had in New York as well. So we have a city that is incredibly dynamic place for young people to live, but it's also very expensive. And so you come here and people tend to live in smaller apartments and they tend to double up in San Francisco, they triple up. And they're they're working hard, but they're able to play hard. We have this incredible... It's a beautiful place. We have restaurants and great places to go out, all of which have been shut for a year and a half. In San Francisco, we have a great public health department that doesn't fool around. They shut this city down. And so 
the technology companies all released their workers. Almost every business released its workers to go work remotely. And if you live in a place in which you live in a small cramped apartment so that you can participate in the life of the city and all of its amenities and those amenities are shut, I think you would do what so many did, which is they temporarily left the city. Many of the companies now who were reported to be going to be remote workplaces forever have been quietly putting out the communication to their employees that between now and sort of Labor Day come back to the office. Many of the technology companies are now sharing what the experience we have had, which is our workers, our team members have been incredibly productive during time, but it's not been easy. And uh, we'll all be better off when we're back in the office. Mm-hmm. So I expect the city to come back strong. And and you think, you know, the remote work um, or the hybrid work model is a temporary fleeting thing? I think that's a little more more complicated. I myself know that I used to jump on a plane to go take a single meeting somewhere. And it's incredibly time-consumptive and disruptive. And while it's not perfect for everything, I know we can have Teams meetings or Zoom meetings now and be productive. So I believe I'm not going to be so quick to jump on a plane for that single meeting. On the other hand, if I can have a period of time where I can have real quality interactions with people, I'm not going to give up traveling. I totally get that we have demonstrated that we are all working long hours, and so being a little fluid with our schedules might allow us to have higher qualities of life, and I, I think that's great. But if that means that I do one day of deep thinking at home, and I'm four days in the office to do teamwork, that might be hybrid. It doesn't really change the fact that most of my time is spent at the office, that the office is still the center of the universe. And that's what I expect. I expect there to be some modifications to how we all work. But it's beyond the margin and not change the the essential equation, which which by the way, I'll just mention one other thing. In San Francisco, particularly driven by the technology companies, pre-pandemic, we had this ever this race to see how many people could fit in a in a single square foot of office space, right? This <laughs> ever densification of our office space, yeah. you know, benching and things. And so people talk about the fact that they say, well, maybe people only be in the office three or four days a week now, and so we need less office space. Well, you totally miss the fact that I think everybody expects that office is designed to 150 square feet per person is not healthy um, after the experience we've just been through, that we want a little more quality space. And so I think our consumption of office space goes a little less dense. And so I think reasons that we're going to need office space as opposed to, to not need it. So I, I look at it as being, I expect us to kind of revert to trend in terms of our and for office space in San Francisco when this when the dust is settled. Right, yeah. Uh, New York City, we're seeing kind of this disparity in office space where, you know, $30 a foot office space is now back in New York City, something we haven't seen in 15 years. But we're finding that, $130 a foot office space is also in a high demand because the companies that can afford it will, instead of taking 20,000 square feet of office space at $80 a foot, 
they'll upgrade for the better office space and they'll take 12,000 square feet. So I think it's it's kind of like a re a, a different way of looking at things. It's a different perspective. I think it definitely changed the way we see the world and the way we interact and work. And I think it's a good thing. You know, I think any time something is disrupted and it makes us stop and take stock of where we are, I think that's uh, the end game, you know, and the end result is good. I don't want to sound like a commercial for San Francisco, <laughs> but what you just described is our core belief, you know, what drives our development practice, that not everybody's looking for the same thing and that our life here is to get the most out of what, you know, our existence is. And, and I think how we work and create is super, super important, but it's one part of a quality of life. And so I think what you're seeing is that we're going to be less of a one size fits all and more of a, of offering a bunch of niche experiences to people. And one of those experiences, one thing that San Francisco offers is that every day when you walk out your door, you see beauty. Mm-hmm. And we are one of the most important economic regions in the country, but we're one in which you can have time to breathe. We're not trying to offer a commodity to everybody. What our practice focus on it focuses on is actually offering people who want to live a better life, who want to live well, the opportunity to do so. And, and by the way, San Francisco is, is one of the most, I mean, in my opinion, one of the most uh, naturally beautiful cities in the world. You know, it reminds me a little bit of Hong Kong. You know, you have this dense urban area, but you don't have to go too far to get out to some of the most magnificent natural beauty. San Francisco is one of those cities. It's just jaw-dropping. Um, so let's segue into your most recent project. You know, you've done a lot of buildings that were historic landmarks, like the Ferry Building, One Powell, the Flood Building, um, but you're creating something now, ground up, and it's an island, and it's got 266 residences, and most of the housing built on Treasure Island Maybe you could start talking a little bit about uh, Yerba Buena Island and what that project is all about. You mentioned Hong Kong, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use that in my story a little bit. Uh, first, maybe it's a little bit of a stretch, but you say that you know we've done these historic buildings and now we're doing an island and kind of there can't be anything the same between them. And I'll, again, maybe stretching a little bit, but, but tell you what, what I do see as being the common theme. There are practices in which people go out and really specialize in delivering a commodity really well, you know, kind of give the same thing in mass to do it really, really well. And we're, we're, a, we're a boutique developer who has always needed to, to create kind of a, a special, better project product to work, work within a niche. And so one of the things that we, why we've been so attracted to historic buildings is that in our restoration of those, we end up creating space that is just differentiated from the products around it because of special qualities. The buildings often have greater volumes of space. They have larger windows that are often operable. And so kind of the experience of light and air, that sense of building details is kind of unique. Well, that same kind of lever, the natural, the the, the inherent 
qualities of this of this thing we came across is is found in Yerba Buena Island. You know, Yerba Buena Island is this natural island, a, a rocky outline island that's been kind of in the bay forever. It's about a mile, mile and a tenth or so from the seawall of downtown San Francisco. You know, so many people, Sean, go, what's, what's Yerba Buena Island? I say, there's millions of people pass through it a day because the Bay Bridge actually on its way to crossing to the East Bay, the East Bay passes through and founds itself on Yerba Buena Island. Yeah, no, it's amazing to me that this actually exists. You know, <laughs> in, in, it's like, where, where, where have people been all this time? Like, how is, how is this gem right in this location, this prime, prime location with all this scenic beauty around it and close proximity to downtown? How does it just sit there, you know, and it's now available to be developed? This natural hilltop, and it's it's got it's this beautiful kind of peaked island. It's got this lovely historic uh, lighthouse on it. In the 1930s, the city used this island to begin building a, a, next to it a natural island called Treasure Island. I, I mean, it's a man-made island. It's called Treasure Island. Treasure Island was intended to be the city's airport flat as a pancake, some 400 acres, but World War II broke out. And so the, the federal government took over the island and made it an, a naval station. And so Treasure Island and its adjoining Yerba Buena Island existed in the middle of the San Francisco Bay. Again, people have lived there, but it's always it was a remote military base. And so the opportunity came to redevelop about 450 acres. They're sitting in the middle of the bay. And so much of the focus was on creating, you know, all the infrastructure had to be replaced. So it's brand new infrastructure, the idea to create one of the most sustainable developments in the world. But while we could create really almost a new city on the man-made island that was Treasure Island, everybody recognized that Yerba Buena Island was really this natural place. And so the city allowed us to develop it but with quite tight restrictions. It's our building, you know, our portion of the island remains with the Coast Guard where that historic lighthouse is and they do search and rescue on the bay from there. And the rest of the island goes to us, but with the restriction that we can only build a couple of hundred homes there. We're building 266 homes. I can't even imagine what the entitlements, what those meetings, what those conversations were like. How, how long was the, how long was this process? Well, we uh, began in two thousand and five. We're building our first homes there now, which will be occupied in December and January. So, what is that? Sixteen years or something? Yes, it doesn't. They're sort of like dog years. They it's long, long slog. Unbelievable. And um, how do you get from Yerba Buena Island to uh, the mainland? You can drive across the Bay Bridge and you can you can drive onto the island. The people that live on the island can have cars there, but it's restricted. 75% of the permanent open space and we're doing this beautiful habitat restoration. But there's also a ferry. Um, it's about a six, seven minute crossing back to the ferry building in the city. The ferry key is, uh, we're just putting the finishing touches on it and it'll uh, be ready to accept ferries this summer. 
ferry service will start with the first residents again later in the year. And But I, I want to go back to this observation you made about Hong Kong, which is really, there was a connection that really inspired Yerba Buena Island. You know, I happen to have to go to Hong Kong a lot. And one of the things that people that have to go there a lot know that is kind of lost in, in the popular mind is how much of that of that area, that island and, and surroundings is open space, right? It's one of the greatest hiking cities in the world. Yeah. And it's beautiful, right? It's super dense in that you can walk up to the to the peak and you can walk the morning trail and, you know, feel like you're out in a tropical jungle. I mean, it's fabulous. And what we liked about that, what I thought was so wonderful about it is you're literally part of Hong Kong. You can have that entire experience of the city and yet you can re- retreat into the open space, have these spectacular views that are that are absolutely urban, and yet have the ability to kind of breathe out, breathe deep, and sort of have room in this very dynamic city. Well, that's what Yerba Buena Island offers. 75% of the island is walking trails and beautiful vistas. Every home has a view of the downtown or the East Bay. We look over Treasure Island, Angel Island, Alcatraz, the Golden Gate Bridge. I mean, the views are, you know, they're with Hong Kong. They're best in they're best in world views, and 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 the hills are are terraced on the hillside like Hong Kong, so that you know everybody has a view, and you can live. You're five minutes from downtown. You can be part of that experience, and yet and yet step back and breathe at the end of the day, and. Uh, so anyway, I just you mentioned Hong Kong, and it it has been such a big influence on us as we thought about yeah, that's, that's great because I kind of saw some images, and I was like, that's that was the place <laughs> that I thought about because I, you know, I love Hong Kong, and it, it's just so special. It's one of those really rare, special places that combines both of the elements that you talk about. It's that urban, but you're so connected with nature. It's almost like the perfect balance. I mean, I don't want to sound like a cheesy commercial, but it, it really is. It's like, it sounds like it's the perfect scenario, you know, and it's uh, sustainable and it's like environmentally friendly and it's, you, you, you feel all of that and um, it's breathtaking. So what do buyers get other than obviously this natural beauty and access to downtown, you know, in minutes, what are the homes like and what do these buyers expect? What do they get for their money? And what did you do differently that makes this special apart from all of the other residential real estate that we see going up around the world? I, I'm going to answer your question and I'm going to say I won't just pass over what you said in that clearly the most important part of the equation is it's if you want to live in the Bay Area, live in San Francisco, it is a special place. And we are squarely offering you kind of that opportunity to participate with San Francisco. The difference is that we're giving you an opportunity for homes that aren't often found in San Francisco if people don't build them themselves. So we are working with a number of different... We love the idea of getting really great designers and having them collaborate and work with one another because we have a theory that the best designers are motivated to do great work, not necessarily because some developer, um, you know, has hired them. And so we love having architects work, work with others of their same 
tier that they that they want to do their best work for, and and that's been great to us. So, so we have at Yerba Buena Island a building called the Bristol, which is 124 condominiums in a really gracious courtyard design building by uh, Hart Howerton, interiors by Vivian Lee of of Edmonds and Lee, and it is the closest we have to a luxury residence that you'd find in San Francisco. The difference is, besides being better amenitized than most most buildings in the city, the units are all a little larger than what you'd find in new buildings in the city. We we believe that people that want to live well want to live with the greatest luxury of all, which is a little bit more space. So so our condominiums are kind of a little little bigger, but where you really see it is the whole rest of the product we have courtyard townhomes some large flats and very small unit buildings sort of seven unit buildings and then five estate home sites and our townhomes are are generally in the three to four thousand square feet range our flats um, and in in smaller buildings will be 2500 to four thousand square feet the homes are are actually larger and they're in the Six, the, the single family, the few single family homes are in that six to 8,000 square foot range. We have a clubhouse just for the island residents designed by Aidlin Darling. We have a park designed by Walter Hood, other grounds done by Ann Howerton. Um, Kevin Conger CMG has done kind of the, the trails and, and, and our little beach park. We have a little, a great protected swimming cove on the island. These are contemporary buildings in that they're of our time and they offer all of the technology of our time. But without a doubt, they're, they're infused by a, I would call it a point of view that's maybe a little more mm, classic. Um, they're not traditional homes, but the nice, very large ceiling heights, very large units, wall to ceiling glass. You know, many of the, the townhomes have beautiful, entertaining decks on the roof. Most have elevators and fireplaces. Again, the, the amenities I could tick through, but what is most important to us is that you're living in a home that is a, a, actually a very large, comfortable, throwback-in-time kind of space, but with all of the, the, the amenities we expect today. And every one of these units having a breathtaking view of San Francisco Bay and the city skyline. And importantly, every one of them offering out your front door a walk on miles of trails around the island, down to the beach, you know, wow. around. Uh, it's, uh, it's special. Yeah. I mean, you said swimming cove. I, I mean, the water there is freezing. Are people swimming? <laughs> no, and, and they're filled with it's filled with sharks. No, uh, there I are no, yeah. no I, I though they did have a report of some whales in the water. You know, there is a one of the things on Yerba Buena Island is again it is a it is a modern development with with all the amenities. But there are two idiosyncratic missions in San Francisco that we that we played off of because they were so special to San Francisco, and one is. Telegraph Hill, which is the, you know, the hill with Coit Tower on top of it, is known to have on its, on its backside, on its bay side, these staircases. When people used to live on the island, you know, 150 years ago when there were no cars, they used to live on Telegraph Hill. 
they would walk up these staircases to these homes that aren't aren't car accessible. And these staircases have become these great garden staircases. And there's some of the really, really special quiet moments in San Francisco. And so Yerba Buena Island, which is this hill and these homes are terraced up it, has its version of the Telegraph Hill steps and that we have all of these common staircases, garden staircases that go up to the beautiful hilltop park. And the other element that that is a throwback to a peculiarity of San Francisco is that in the city we have something called aquatic park. It's on the it's a bayside, it's an historic part of the city where we have some of the our tall ship, I know you have them in New York as well, you know, park there. And there are two old clubs, the Dolphin Club and the uh, South, oh my God, I'm going to get it wrong, Southwest or Southeast Rowing Club, in which people pride themselves on going and freezing um, swimming laps aquatic park in the bay. Right. And for whatever reason, it's just a badge of honor that people do it. And I, you wouldn't catch me dead doing it, though they tell me the sauna afterwards is really good. But uh, we have this beautiful protected beach and we have our own version of the Dolphin Club on Yerba Buena Island. That's awesome. Yeah, no, I'm all for swimming cold, and I don't know if you know who Wim Hof is, but, you know, it reverses aging, it does all these amazing things. Um, and, you know, your description of the stairs, you know, really, again, evokes Hong Kong in my mind, you know, yeah. those stairs that go up. So what, you know, 16 years on a project, things have to change. And, you know, over the past year, you must have had some second-guessing moments where you're thinking to yourself, all right, do we need to redesign things? Is the home of the future different the way people live are they going to expect different things did you change anything and how much did you second guess yourself i am not aware of anything that we changed though i think what we prioritize in our storytelling might evolve right one of the 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 realities we have and i think all of us you know you know you and you know who are probably mostly interested in in the space we, we we share, it takes us three to five years at best, even if you're not doing a long project like this, to design and get something built. So when a pandemic comes along that's a year and a half, the real adaptations you know, may show up over time. But what these crises, what these kind of shocks to the system do is really focus you on what you should have been doing all along is thinking of of kind of how one should live, what are the best practices. And so I don't so much see specific changes as I do see ideas that we have been talking about for five or 10 years that have proven to be, to be smart. So I'll give you examples. As much as we talked about everybody returning to the office space, we've been thinking about, as all of us, you know, dealing with kind of development, have been thinking about now for five or 10 years Sometimes we work in the office and sometimes we work at home. And most of the time we, we do both. And what is the way in which we're going to give people the opportunity to work at home? In multifamily buildings, you see it in co-working spaces and, and various things like that. And so I think making it easy to work from home is something we've been thinking about and that the pandemic proved we needed to have been thinking about, but, but the pandemic in itself didn't change it, if you see what I mean. Right, so, yeah. So for us, the connectivity and making sure that we, we have all the connectivity, sure, that's great. 
And sure, in our buildings and even on our trails and in our island club at Yerba Buena Island, we have places where people can sit and work. But what we've really found people respond to very well is we now build at every size, every size home we build, we build in natural places to work, the little niche, sometimes with doors that can be closed so you can leave your mess out, but always with a place to have your computer set up with the good connectivity so that I can emotionally um, separate myself from work and not have my computer set up on my, my dining room table. I think all of us that are thinking, <laughs> truthfully, Sean, what I'm going to say is all of us who are getting older um, <laughs> worry about our physical and our mental conditions. And I think there's lots of evidence that, that natural light and, high qual- and good quality air actually really matters right so oh absolutely (laughs) the buildings we do you know we have we really take a lot of care over air filtration we make sure that we have uh but at the same time that you can have fresh air and operable windows that you've got lots of natural light that doesn't require you to always be have your your world artificially flooded with with light and again those things are more important because of the pandemic, but they're not yeah. actually they're not actually new. They were here before. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when you figure out a way to change the temperature and the climate outside, um, you may be onto something. <laughs> it reminds me of a quote. I think it was Tony Bennett, right, who said, "My coldest winter ever was summer in San Francisco." Yes, <laughs> that's yes, a little yes. unfair, but. Um, Yeah, no, really, really fascinating. I mean, I think, you know, what I'm finding, you know, in conversations I've had with developers like yourself, and I've had conversations with people across the globe on this podcast, and it's fascinating, you know, developers in Sydney, Australia, Costa Rica, London, New York, Miami, you know, it seems to me that there's more consistency in the ideas and the thoughts, you know, and... I think people around the world are kind of looking for the same things and those are the important things. You know, it's space and it's quality of life and, um, you know, health, wellness, peace of mind. And I think if your home can provide some of that, you know, that's where people see value. You know, that's what people will pay a premium for. If you as developer can provide, you know, those things that are intangible, and I think Yerba Buena Island sounds perfect from, you know, that aspect because you've got the fresh air, you've got the views, you've got the natural beauty. You're not going to spend two hours commuting to work. You've got the flexibility. And it sounds amazing. I mean, I'm going to come, you know, when I, I can go onto the West Coast, um, I'm going to come and check it out. And it sounds incredible. What's, you know, after this 16-year journey, and I'm sure there's, you know, <laughs> And another couple of years before it's completed, I'm sure it'll sell incredibly well um, very quickly. What's next for you? Well, first of all, I look forward to seeing you when you come out. Uh, I'm not going to go swimming, though. (laughs) No, no, neither am I. Um, You know, you got it exactly right, though. What you described is exactly right. So, So while Yerba Buena Island is this very, very special offering, you know, we are... We have a, a big sprawling joint effort. We have this. We have our, our long-term great partner, Stockbridge Capital Group, and then um, Lennar is our our joint venture partner on Treasure Island. And 
together we're developing many different home types there, which will be coming out in the years. And that's, that's fun. And it might not be as at the same price point as, Mm -hmm. as Yerba Buena Island, but the issues are all the issues that you talked about is what is real and what it's our challenge to, you know, to offer. And then, you know, we, we're also, you know, been lucky enough to participate in some of the great new stuff that's happening in LA. And, And I have to say, I'm, I think I think in Los Angeles you are seeing a city really starting to hit a stride that I the the most important cities in the coming in the coming decade I think it's really leading the way on some important issues like you know how you know so much of the media and entertainment comes from there but it's, there's a lot of cultural things happening in LA and and teaching us all to how to live kind of in more cosmopolitan environments to live more happily in diverse environments. I'm super excited about what we're doing there. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't know what you're doing there specifically, but I think there's a huge opportunity to create something in LA from a housing standpoint that has not yet been built, you know, for the people who live there. So I'm really excited that you could join me. I'm really looking forward to your next project and, um, you know, can't wait to, take a trip to San Francisco to look at the island um, sounds like the perfect place to live. What is the most expensive home on Yerba Buena Island going to be? The vast majority of the the homes will sell and call it the three to $9 million price range. We have a few homes in which the will really offer plans and, and, and a lot for $10 million and, the home is on top of that. So those get a little pricey, but um, they're very special. Yeah. I mean, they sound, sound incredible. Um, and they actually sound inexpensive relative to <laughs> some other cities and, you know, places in the world for what you get for your money. Well, Chris, it's been great chatting with you. Um, thanks so much for, for your time. Any parting words of wisdom about going forth in 2021 <laughs> out of the pandemic? No, well, Sean, first of all, thank you for, for taking the time with, to talk with me. And I think so many of your observations are, are just spot on. And that is what I believe. I believe that, that after the pandemic, much of what we'll do is return to trend. But hopefully, hopefully we've taken more to heart those issues. Like what really matters is to build environments that help us live well, healthy and well. Amen. Well, looking forward to you to you know continuing to do that, and um, can't wait to see it in, with my own two eyes. Thanks so, so much, Sean. Thank you, and uh, be safe, be well, and healthy, and keep building. Thanks very much. All right, thank thanks, you. Chris. All right.